Hey, deserving listeners, one of my favorite, or I'll say two of my favorite movies are Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, 2004, and Adaptation, 2002. I have a hard time deciding which of these two are more important to me. I think mm-hmm. I would say Eternal Sunshine. It's also one of my wife's favorite movies of all time. We have, we have a poster of it in our living room right now. These movies are written and directed and acted, but particularly written in such an amazing way. And I, I can rewatch both of these movies for the rest of my life. It would, you know, if there were like 10 movies that I could only watch for the rest of my life, these two would probably be on that list. Written by the same writer, which is Charlie Kaufman. He wrote Eternal Sunshine. He wrote Adaptation. Most people know Charlie Kaufman from Being John Malkovich. So you have this just powerhouse of movies that Charlie Kaufman wrote between films being released 1999 to 2004. This is a five-year period of time where you have Being John Malkovich, Human Nature, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine, Spotless Mind. You're just thinking, my God, if this guy even pumps out one classic movie every five years instead of every year, we are looking at possibly the best screenwriter that has ever lived. I was just super on board with him. It made me fall in love with the directors, Michael Gondry and Spike Jones. It made me realize that Jim Carrey could actually act, that Nicolas Cage could play very nuanced characters, that John Cusack and, and Cameron Diaz weren't just rom-com people. And then he releases a number of movies, Amalisa, which I like. Anomalisa. Anomalisa, sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's a stop-motion movie. Kind of weird, but still very much enjoyable. I liked it. But going back to 2008, Synecdoche, New York, which I hated. I That movie came out soon after Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, and I thought, man, I am... This movie's just going to be... It's the next Charlie Kaufman movie. It's going to be awesome. And Charlie Kaufman's going to direct it. So, man, mm-hmm. this is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, this is this movie, Catherine Keener. You know, you got all the stars in there. This thing is going to be amazing. Hated it. One out of ten. Oh, my God. Maybe it's because I had too high expectations, uh, but I refused to ever watch it again. So he made four awesome movies. He wrote four awesome movies. Then he did Synecdoche, New York, which I found to be eternally frustrating. Then he made, in a, after many years later, Anomalisa, which I thought was, okay, he's getting back to his roots. Like a story. It makes sense. I get it. It's, you know, it's dark. It's very Charlie Kaufman. And then Netflix says, we're, we're we're giving Charlie Kaufman all this money. He can make whatever he wants. You know, Netflix just has an, uh, you know, just whatever you want to do. Auteurs, come to us. Spike Lee, uh, Martin Scorsese, do whatever you want. And Charlie Kaufman gets the ball. He's going to write and direct this film. It's got Jesse Plemons. It has Tony Collette in it. You're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to be so good. And it wasn't as bad as Synecdoche, New York. I'll put it that way. <laughs> you mean it wasn't as good? Uh, it wasn't as bad, and I want to get into it today. And we're going to spoil the whole movie, by the way, because I don't know. We I just want to because I don't care if anyone's spoiled for this movie. But I give it a four out of ten, uh, particularly because the first I don't know forty five minutes or half an hour I thought was like firmly Charlie Kaufman, and I was like, okay. And then it just completely goes off the rails, and there wasn't anything redeeming about anything beyond that point to me. 
But, you know, all the pretentious art, you know, people who just love movies like The Lighthouse and stuff, I'm sure, are just like goo goo gaga over, you know, oh, my God, it's it's so confusing. My mind is blown. Um, let's talk about this new movie on Netflix. I'm thinking about ending things. What do you say, Birdo and Colin? Let's talk about it. Let's do it. Hold on. I'm thinking of leaving this podcast because <laughs> I don't like this movie. <laughs> this is the Psychology of Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkana. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. Who are you, Bruno? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I turn flesh into alabaster. Who are you, Colin? My name is Colin Miller. I'm from Texas, and I create snow machines for moody situations. All right, mm. Birdo. Uh, how many Birdos out of 10 does this movie get? Uh, so, yeah, so this one, not quite as good as Synecdoche, in my opinion, so I would give this one a 7. Wow. Oh, my God. Uh, Colin, what'd you give it? I gave it a 6.5. Oh, okay. What? So, Midland. How could All you right. go so low? All right. Well, he's growing up. He's maturing, you know? he's, he's I mean, having on rewatch, <laughs> I might go higher. We'll see. <laughs> he's having a more refined taste in, in moves. Okay. And thank you both for that. I mean, I would be lost without y'all. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I'm just bullying him into hating movies that he, that he, that he enjoys. Um, okay, so I gave my sort of brief impression. Colin, what do you think of this movie? I actually think that the key to a good Charlie Kaufman film is the director. Not that the man isn't a genius. He's a great screenwriter, visionary, pioneer of cinema. However, my order at this point, and I know the last time I did an order, we were here for five hours. I'll just quickly rattle through these. Is like at the very top, tip top of the iceberg, nobody even close it's eternal sunshine of the spotless mind i think michelle gondry uh she brought so he. much to the table he. gendry thank you um so much to the table then right after that would be adaptation that's a spike jones and then after that would be being john malkovitz and that's another one directed by spike jones and then right after that actually i like confessions of a dangerous mind i know that that's a you know a bit of a i guess you could say black sheep when people are talking about the great kaufmans but i actually just recently watched that um towards the beginning of quarantine for the first time and loved it so i i find that this uh this movie didn't reach um the heights of any of the films that I just mentioned. What about Synecdoche, New York? I think that Synecdoche, New York is not as technically good as um, I'm thinking of ending things, but I I do think that it has a better central character. Even though you're not really rooting for the main character in Synecdoche, New York, um, there's... <sighs> There was more a there was more of a refined style for me in this movie than in that one. Interesting. Um, again, I could rewatch Synecdoche, New York, but that's a very particular instance where I watched it in high school, and then it, again, it was I think it was my junior year that it came out, uh, two thousand eight. But um, and then it turned on me when I watched it again when I bought it on DVD. I didn't like it as much. I think I was just like really excited about being a film nerd and 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 when i watched it again i I didn't invest in the characters and i think you know going into my thoughts on i'm thinking of ending things 
is that's my big problem with it, is that there's not a character really to get behind. Whereas in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you're being propelled through this journey of surrealism where time is bending and and the only clues you have that take you through... I mean, you have clues, but the only obvious clues is somebody's hair color. Um, You don't have that in this movie, and so you're a little bit lost. And even though the characters say intelligent things and there are musings on, you know, the finality of, you know, deciding whether you're going to be with somebody or not, how, uh, you know, how we get trapped in relationships and the duration of our relationships can extend well beyond, you know, what we're actually wanting from this, from the relationship. But, um, but yeah, there, it just fell a little bit flat because even though I could appreciate what was visually happening and I could understand the tone and the, the symbolism and I loved the snow and, and I was feeling very cold and contemplative and I'm like, okay, this film is working on me. It's working on me, but working on me to what end? And I found myself not ending in any particular place when the movie was done. Yeah. Berto, what'd you think? Yeah, so first of all, Kaufman-wise, I I would still have to give the top spot to Eternal Sunshine. It's it's not technically my number one choice. Like, if you were like, Barry, you get to watch one Charlie Kaufman movie on your island, it would still be an adaptation. But but I still have to give the top spot to Eternal Sunshine because it's ultimately a weightier topic. It's like a a more ultimate film, if if you will. Uh, I think it's almost a realization of some of the questions he asked in being John Malkovich, in a way. But... The, my favorite of his, like that, I would watch all the time, and certainly at least my second best of his is adaptation. That movie just yeah. does so many things right for me. It's yeah. amazing. Uh, I also love being John Malkovich. By the way, I think that if modern Kirk watched being John Malkovich, he might not like it as much as when it first came out. Well, maybe, maybe totally. Yeah. But it, there's a story. There is a story. <laughs> like yeah. from my memory, I could describe that story. Sure. Guy goes yeah. to office, finds door, it goes into Malkovich's head, and he now can, people can just get into John Malkovich's body, and right. Malkovich is upset about it, and Mal- John Malkovich, the actor, goes on a mission to find out who's getting into his head, and, you know, hijinks ensue. Sure. How do you describe I'm thinking about anything? Well, actually, I'm thinking about anything. Or even in New York, for that matter. Right. I'm thinking of ending things is much easier, in my opinion, and more, much more straightforward. By the way, what I'll say is this. One of the things I loved about this movie, and I only gave it a seven, right? Like, there are things I would have improved. I thought the beginning was way too slow. I did, you know, the first. I, oh. I mean, maybe in retrospect, I would look at it and be like, okay, all right, I see why it was slow. So, But it's, I still felt a little bored at the first 20 minutes. Uh, I really loved the, the car scene. I, I, I thought... Okay, you know, we're in this girl's head. I, I actually like voiceovers. They actually go into that in adaptation of like, you're not supposed to have voiceovers. Never do a voiceover. <laughs> and I I always am confused. Colin, as a – sorry for interrupting, but just on the sidebar. Colin, do you know why in film school they teach you not to write voiceovers? Because there's this overriding uh, sense of show, don't tell. So if you need a voiceover to communicate what's going on, then you've missed something because there should be visual components to what's happening that tell that telegraph enough of the story, the sequence, the character, the motivation um, so that you don't need it. However, I don't agree with that, actually. I think that voiceover 
can be a like anything in a movie can be a stylistic choice. Of course, if you just do it, you know, I think I've seen some movies where it does feel random and out of place. It's like, why the fuck are you talking? Like, we, we get it. Like, or <laughs> I, I love, so like, so like on a, um, like on a certain level, I love sex in the city. Like, of course that's like a guilty pleasure for me, but the, the Carrie Bradshaw narrations, I know this is TV, not film, but, um, they add nothing. Like there's certain, like they don't, add layers to the nuances of the performances or the themes. They're just butter on butter. It's like the butter's already there, so you can bake your damn biscuit. But like in, for example, my favorite genre, film noir, a lot of the storytelling in the style is done through narration. And we get a lot of what this character can't, you know, how, how he's feeling about this crime or this girl or this drug, you know, um, through the narration, so yeah, yeah, it just has to fit the film. Yeah, I, me too. I I think it's really simplistic. You know, when they say that you're not supposed to have voice error, it's like saying you're not supposed to have lighting that doesn't make sense to the room or something. It's like, uh, you know, a lot of if you do it right, you know, you you can make it amazing. And I really liked it. I in the beginning of this movie, I thought, man, we are in Charlie Kaufman world right now. There's a there's some awkwardness there. She starts off as I'm thinking about ending things with this guy, you know, and there's this train, this sort of, uh, I don't know, f f uh, free association of thought that you could s tell was being uh, maybe the style of writing he was having. It's like, okay, then what happens? Then what happens? It was very interesting that way. And actually, now that I think about it, I would speculate, who knows, that he started the movie with that scene in the car and then had no way to end it. And decided that he was just gonna like vomit on the page for the for the rest of the movie. No, no, no. This is based on a book. This is an adaptation of a book. Oh, is it? Yes, yes. So th this is not him inventing randomness. I just want to. But make it's very that clear. different, though, Umberto. It is. It's like it's not know, that different. Like, did you read the book? I I, I I discussed it with someone that did. Oh. So I haven't personally read it, but I discussed it with someone that did. Interesting. Now, I, I will say this. Like, so what I was saying is this. I have no problem with the voiceover. I have a problem with voiceover in Blade Runner. I don't have a problem with voiceover here. I thought the voiceover was great. All I'm talking about is, the, and it's, of course, a matter of debate, but the pace at the beginning felt slow to me. Because in all those other movies we love, enough stuff happens within the first 15 minutes where I'm, like, fully engaged. In this one, I, I thought the opening was brilliant, right? Like, thinking of ending things. And then, yeah, I, I thought all that was fine. But then it dragged a bit for me. That's that's it. However, I then started treating this, and not by uh, like on purpose. I just noticed it. I was like, "This is one of the best horror movies I've seen in a long time." Because see, as we've talked about, a lot of horror movies are cheap. They just show you like ghosts and things and stuff, and it's like, "Whoa!" It's like, um, this movie was like so scary to me. I was sitting there watching the scenes at the parents' house. And I think one of the things that made it scary is because it wasn't supposed to be. Meaning, he, this is clearly not on purpose a horror movie, but he filmed it like one. He told it like one. And I was sitting there going like, oh God, this is so frightening. Like, she sees something and it's like, it's so uncanny. Like, the parents were so uncanny right off the bat. Why are they not coming down? Why is the Nor Norman Bates mother waving at us? Why, what is happening? I felt so destabilized. So scared to, through those scenes. The dog, and they did, you know, they do do that stuff in horror movies. But here they did it so on purpose. It wasn't a cheap shock that the dog is twitching. It was like, there's a reason why this is happening. 
And so that all, I was like, wow, I'm super, this is super effective on me. Um, yeah. And then the, the ending, the whole ending sequence to me was, was impressive because it was like, it felt like a serial killer. Like I was watching a serial killer movie and yet it was all being told sort of from his perspective. And it's like, whoa, this is, so that's why I loved it. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. It just, it just did not compel me. And there were certain beats that if I could make the movie to my liking, I would have changed. Like, um, I found that this movie was actually similar to Mother, actually, in that you have, this, you have this house where at first, at least we're being told, I guess, that it's supposed to be literal. You have these people at this house. But as time goes on, you realize, oh, no, no, this is... This isn't real, real. There's something else going on here. And if it, the movie would have started when they got to the house, if they wouldn't have gone into the barn with the pig and the dead sheep, like, just get rid of that scene altogether. Because as soon as we got to that scene, I was like, oh, no, Charlie, what are you doing? We've gotten off the golden sort of script that you were in the car. Now we're in, like obvious symbol land just like synecdoche new york it's like you know seventh graders you know in in film lit class can understand this Ooh, you know symbolism let's look at you know what the symbol of the lamb is and it it's just like no charlie and then we go into the house and the parents are crazy acting i mean they are act in, in the beginning and as time goes on they act a little bit more normal and I, it, for my taste if you could have written the script for just me I would have had the parents act much more normal in the beginning and then slowly get strange. And where I was like, whoa, wait, what, what's happening here? Whereas right from the start, I was like, oh, those are not real people. Those are, those are fake characters. They're, they're obviously not his real parents. There's something, you know, supernatural or symbolic or it's all a dream. Or, and so uh, – if there was a ramp up to it in the way that Eternal Sunshine, you know, there's a ramp up in adaptation. There's there's a ramp up to that storyline. Being John Malkovich, there's a ramp up. Instead of like um, starting with it already being weird without it earning its weirdness. Does that make sense, Bruno? I mean, I, I see what you're saying. And, and certainly in movies like Eternal Sunshine and Being John Malkovich, uh, they give you an explicit an explicit reason for the weirdness. They're like, right. yeah, yeah. Just you got to accept one weird thing about my little world here. You can go into someone's head right. or, hey, we have a technology that lets you like erase memories. Once you, ha- once you accept that, then you're like, okay, now I get why there's weirdness. Whereas in this movie and certainly in Synecdoche, New York, it is absolute David Lynch territory. Right. It's like, okay, just there's weirdness. Right. So let me actually go into that a little bit because I'm worried that the listeners might be like, well, Kirk, you know, you just don't have a refined palette for or you don't like this style of movie you you like movies like beverly hills cop and (laughs) and you know jewel of the nile where there's like this very clear plot and you know anything that gets off the rails into surrealism you don't like well let me give you another perspective people one of my favorite movies is maholland drive which has some totally unexplainable scenes and it could be argued that about halfway through the movie the script was just completely thrown out and a whole new storyline was written. And I don't really understand Mulholland Drive. And, you know, there's theories as to the turns. 
but it is one of my favorite movies. It's my favorite David Lynch movie, and David Lynch is one of my favorite directors. Brazil is weird. Eternal Sunshine is weird. Being John Malkovich is weird. Spirited Away doesn't make any sense. Black Swan has some turns to it. Vanilla Sky has some turns to it. The Fountain is probably my the most best movie that I could put forward in terms of like a lot of people don't like The Fountain because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Jacob's Ladder, Pie, these you know Aaron Aronofsky's first movie, Pie. I um, I love these movies. These are like you know top movies for me. But the difference is is that um, I'm thinking about any things. There's no story. And I get what he was trying to say. And it could have been written in a way that would have had all those beats in it, maybe even the same scenes, but some story that actually had me uh, interested in the character as we move forward, like make, you know, and just me brainstorming right now, make the woman a real person, which, by the way, we could talk about whether she's most likely she's not real, right? But make her a real person um, and make her actually transport through time as well. Like maybe um, in the future, she is working at the school and, you know, his future self and he sees her having a having grandkids or something, you know, like make it so that it's similar to Eternal Sunshine where they meet and struggle and it doesn't really work out and then we kind of see why it doesn't work out for the main character and it had something to do with the parents and you know and we're going through an older fella's memory landscape as he reflects on his life but there's a story to his life because as it is as it's written uh, if you accept it again, spoiler alert, that it's this older fella's reflecting back on his life or at least it that's at least the timeline. There's no story there. <laughs> he was uh, a loner in the past that had frustrated relationships with his parents, and he stayed a loner throughout his entire life and an observer and perhaps never met a woman and never dated any women. And to me, it, it could have had the Charlie Kaufman magic if he just would have asked someone like, you know, what did you like about the movies I wrote in the past? And what did you not like about some of the movies <laughs> that I wrote in the past? Well, but it clearly like, OK, I, maybe I'm the only one, but it, it really hit the mark for me because uh, like, first of all, I didn't understand the movie almost at all by the end of it. I read subsequently. I talked to someone who read the book and then I understood a lot more. And now I appreciate it more. When I saw it, though, like I said, my, my reaction to it was visceral. I was like, wow, this is so cool. So intimidating. Some of those scenes, I was so scared because it was so destabilizing. But, you know, like the, the story, you're right. It's, it's, it's a, a man who was a loner and who died under mysterious circumstances. The biggest difference between the book and the movie, apparently, is that in the book, there is a turn in the book where it shifts from like this sort of like disorienting uh, narration by, the, by the, the man, I guess, about these, these things, these events that seem like disconnected and that are mostly imagined to uh, apparently uh, people that went to that high school discussing the actual events and filling in the holes and getting very real about what happened and didn't happen, which I think... Oh my God, that would have been so good. No, it sounds like Charlie Kaufman decided that that... That that was like spelling it out or whatever, so he decided to keep it all all like up for interpretation. Okay, well, and if you had read the like book, me, like I love that. Oh, okay, 
Uh, yeah, and, and well, I here's the other thing. Okay, sorry. You, you go. Go. No, no, you, no, you. Well, I, okay, I'll just finish with this for now. Um, the, the thing that I really liked, again, is that not understanding what the movie was about, which apparently, by the way, that was a woman that he did meet at a bar and thought about giving her the number, thought about asking her, never did. And so he was imagining a relationship with her and he didn't know where to place her in his story. Yeah. And that's I, why his parents were, I didn't get any of that. I, I, just, I, I got that pretty quick. I was like, Oh, she's you're not ahead a real, of me. Yeah. You're ahead of No, I, I did get that she wasn't, but I didn't know that like why the parents were aging. I didn't get that, but that was because he didn't know where to place her in his own story. But, but, but the thing that I liked, so none of that I knew, right? That's not why I liked the movie. I didn't like it because, oh, this is so deep. It was simply presented to me in such a viscerally scary way. But, and, and not scary in a trivial way. It was like life scariness, like life and death. I thought the pig thing it seems trivial, but I didn't grow up in a farm. So I don't actually have a visceral understanding of what it's like to wake up one morning and these sheep are frozen in the ground, and they're going to stay there for a whole season. I don't get that. So when I saw those scenes, I was like, oh, weird. That is like confronting death like in a way that a lot of us city folk don't. And, and so there, there were a lot of those things that might seem trivial, like trivial symbolism. But um, like it, the actual meaning of it, apparently, is just memories he had as a child that were traumatic to him, that, that he was recalling probably in the throes of death, of getting frozen to death in the car. And I don't need all those reasons. I just think... Like it, he actually did a good a good uh, job for people like me to get maybe that like horror movies to have an honest horror experience without any supernatural stuff. Yeah, and before going to you, Colin, I just want to say that if you're listening and you like the movie, which you likely do because the uh, ratings are pretty high, and Berto and Colin are probably representing the majority, um, we can all. Have different takes on movies. It's it's okay. You can love the movie and you know be pretentious and stupid. Just joking. You, you can you can love the movie. I can hate it. You can love Roma. I cannot like it. I can I, I can love Pi. I can love Aronofsky's Noah and the Fountain and Pi. And you can hate it. Uh, I can love David Lynch's Dune and you can hate it. Uh, yes, it's all good it's art everyone looks at it differently and i find that when people disagree on you know their take on a movie it's somehow sort of some sort of crisis of like uh, personality <laughs> like oh my god you you uh, I, you know the chance that two people agree on every movie is basically zero uh well but, but the proof that i'm right and you're wrong is that all the movies that are great that you like i also like you just don't like the movies that are great that i like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, which is interesting because um, uh, we often do agree on yeah, movies. Yeah, we agree like 99%. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Colin, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I just I think that with this movie, it's important to separate plot from story because I think that the plot isn't very clear, but I think the story is very clear. I just think it's a flat story because nobody's fighting for anything. So I'm, you know, because it's like, all right, so this, you know, if it's, if we're going to say that she's the protagonist, which I would say that even though there's a twist, um, she is, uh, she's sure she's contemplating whether or not she wants to leave, you know, she's thinking about ending things, but we don't see her fight for her relationship or we don't have enough, um, 
external conflict represented by her partner that would indicate that she, you know, really is having to fight to get out of a relationship that she should leave or in her mind thinks that she should leave. Or we don't establish enough her need to leave because we don't need necessarily external conflict for her to because you can want to leave a relationship and not in the other person doesn't have to you know represent any kind of issue of course um but we don't really get that we just get a a stagnant character portrayed well by um the the actress jesse something um i know it's jesse plemons and the i don't know jesse buckley jesse buckley thank you um but she plays out beats that are reactionary you know she She's reacting to her boyfriend. She gets to the house. She's reacting to the parents. She's reacting to the weirdness of the basement, the, the t- lapses in time, the dog that shakes and shakes and shakes. And to me, that's a very weak protagonist because they're not not to get super, you know, heady or whatever, but she's incredibly passive. And a passive protagonist doesn't really yield a lot of um inspiration to stay with the movie and it actually can really weigh down because if you look at Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind our protagonist Joel is constantly first he's fighting to escape Clementine and then he's fighting to keep her in her in his heart and you're with him because you see the character's passion and there is no passion to any of the characters so even though I understood the story of all right well these are people who are caught in time uh, of all the things they were and all the things they can be. And they're, you know, they're upset because of all of life is weighing on them in this. And in these moments, they're carrying the possibility and the weakness in every waking, uh, you know, echo of a conversation. Um, but that's it. And so, I, yeah, I, I just I, I think we just needed more fight from these people. So, so I want to give I want to give you an idea here. Imagine you were watching this from the perspective of a horror movie where this guy's a serial killer, and the fighting that's happening is this story that's very briefly intimated when she's actually telling the the janitor like I never even like I didn't I I, I just saw him at a bar and like that's it we never even knew each other whatever and but you know you can't go out as a woman and without being bothered in that little moment. Imagine you see that through that lens the whole thing. And it's this woman who feels trapped in a relationship. And she's so trapped and unable to move out of it that she goes along with going to, in the middle of a potential winter storm, to go see his parents who he's never met. And she just started going out with this guy. It's been like six weeks. They barely know each other. She already wants it out. And she can't say no to go see her parents. They go see their parents. It's a bizarre experience. And, and I mean, put aside all the weird meta, metaphysical stuff, just like it's a bizarre experience. And then she wants to go home and he's not listening to her. Then they start going home and it's a terrible storm. And then he's being really weird and says he wants to go off to the road and get some ice cream from a place. Then he's bizarre and he doesn't want to interact with the women at the place. And the women, clearly there's some backstory. One of them looks like she's got bruises all over the place. And 
warns the, the gal, don't, don't go. You could stay here. And, so, and she's like, I have no choice in life as a woman. And she goes. And now they're headed off some road. And then he's clearly been doing this before. He's dumped dozens of these ice cream things into the garbage can. How many women has he killed? What's going to happen? That's the lens I was experiencing this through, which was both like this, like, oh, my God, what is going to happen? Uh, this is a serial killer or horror movie thing. And kind of like her helplessness as a woman in these situations. She wants to leave, but she's at his mercy. Your story is much better than my experience watching this movie. <laughs> um, you tell me I was with you. I, I'm on. I, I can see the tone. I can like a like a David Fincher tone, if you will. Uh, and and I would be curious, like, what is it? it, it, it you know, where's uh, there's a twist coming at some point here. But you know, did he kill? You know, what's is she gonna die? This movie, when they get to the house, right from the start, like I said, it's like, oh, pff, we're in a we're in an art student's idea of what symbolism is supposed to look like. You know, it's like, okay, I get it. The sheep are supposed to symbolize something. The pig and the maggots and. And the dog and the parents aren't actually there, and the house is probably not there, and uh, I'm beginning to think the woman isn't actually even there. Um, and it's like I, I just was like, oh, you know, it was you, like you said, in the way that you laid out that story. I, I would have absolutely watched. It. Now I might not have loved the movie, you know, I might have been like by the end, I'm like, oh, you know, five or six, but I would have been like, absolutely recommend. What does anybody want in this movie? You know, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you what yeah. anybody wanted. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, to, so to push back a little bit on that, like that's exactly why we need the Kaufmans in the world, right? Like, uh, and maybe, maybe it is that I, I don't know. Like, I, I look at it like, what does anyone want in Lost Highway? Like, right? There's just weird scenery. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea why I like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway. Why I hate Inland Empire, which is by David Lynch. It, it's a it's a David Lynch movie, Inland Empire, right? And weird. And I hated it right from the start. Why do I love Eternal Sunshine and being John Malkovich and Anomalisa and hate this movie? I don't know. I can't explain it. All I can say is I wanted to like this. And very quickly after they got out of the car, I was like, ugh. And it was just more it just became harder and harder for me to watch this movie it, it, it i was like okay we're doing a podcast like if we weren't doing a podcast about this movie and it was my doing by the way i i was the one who asked everyone to watch this because i thought it was going to be amazing i thought netflix charlie kaufman it's been a while he had that stinker but then he had anomalisa anomalisa has a great story i loved that movie and i loved how anomalisa was had that darkness that that Charlie Kaufman brings and that depression and that disappointment and that awkwardness and the humanness of it and Jesse Plemons and you're just saying, oh my God, you know. So anyway, let's take a break. We'll get back and I'll continue to dog on this movie. What do you say, guys? <laughs> let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. So Birdo, if Nicolas Cage's character in Adaptation the brother uh, who wrote excellent, you know, uh, uh, shoot 'em up <laughs> movies, were to be convincing his brother Charlie to become a patron of the podcast. What would that sound like? 
So I, I just got back from a from a seminar. You should attend this seminar. It's so great. And luckily, I know you're trying to write these books, and I know you're so much better writer than me. And, but, but I now understand, like, I can make characters work because, oh, you should see, this guy is really, like, amazing the way he just tells you how to lay out your story. And then, like, when you run into trouble, you're feeling, like, a little bit psychologically stuck. He points you to this website. It's like this Patreon site. And, like, you just become a patron of Psychology in Seattle. It, it works like a charm like so many top writers have co- what, what do you mean you don't care about being a top writer well I mean they made a lot of money following his rules oh so you don't want to make money now you, I don't understand I thought you wanted to be a famous writer oh you're not doing it for fame fine doing it for peer recognition oh that doesn't mean okay but I still think you'd enjoy his classes you need to come with me <laughs> okay. I swear to God bro if there's a skill that you have <laughs> that other people don't. Yeah, it is that. Uh, Colin, what do you think of the 4-3 four, the four, aspect? I think that you know it highlighted some of the things that you mentioned are Kaufman staples. I would say that it's a very quintessential Kaufman look. Um, I, I think that it helped add to the feeling of isolation, awkwardness, um, chill, and as I... I as I said, even though I wasn't totally motivated by the characters, the style of it was extremely strong. I thought it was a good a good choice. Yeah, it's interesting. But by, uh, by the way, Lighthouse four yeah. three, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. you and I did yeah. not like the Lighthouse. And so I also just like you couched your stuff. I want to say I don't just like any random weirdness. Yeah. I didn't enjoy the Lighthouse. Many people would probably think I'm crazy. We we were crazy. Yeah. But that's a movie that bored me. <laughs> yeah. I was so bored of the Lighthouse. It is not more boring than this movie. I was more enthralled than this movie. <laughs> uh, I'll grant you that I was equally bored with both of these movies. Honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but... But the thing is with the lighthouse, I can actually understand why people would love it, you know, because the the acting and the power and sure. the and visually it was amazing. Yeah, and the it had a story. You had two guys who yeah. were and of course what I didn't like about it was when it goes completely off the rails at the end and we're just like, Oh, we're in magic land. There's <laughs> there's nothing here that's real. And it's like, okay, great. You know, uh, another rule that they should teach screenwriters is don't write dream sequences that are very long, you know, like have a point to it. Like, you know, Berto and I always talk about this. I hated the last season of The Sopranos where, as I don't know, it was last season, but it was close to the end where there's, I don't know, several episodes where uh, James Gandolfini's character, uh, Tony Soprano, is in a dream. He's in the hospital. He's recovering from a gunshot wound and and. He's in a dream, and the the dream sequences are so long and boring and forever taking, and it's so obvious what they're referring to. And to me, a, a dream sequence is only good if it reveals new information or if it's short or if it has some kind of point to it. But, you know, I feel like a lot of writers, it's just kind of like a, I don't know, like a filler or something. And... Um, an excuse to get away with weird cinematography and writing or something? I don't know. But you can earn a dream sequence with the progress- the proper progression of a script. So yeah. I think that's something that separates 
this movie from The Lighthouse because I probably would have rated this movie a little bit higher had that uh, second car ride not gone the way that it it went, you know? I, I think that there's... You know, like you said, it goes into magic land in the lighthouse. Well, I felt like the entire structure of the movie, the entire reason the movie existed, was to take two people and take them into magic land. Yeah, and it was much more earned because it because it was at the end, and they were both or one of them was more emotionally distraught by the end, and so it makes sense that. Uh, the symptoms or the experience of the sea and of that whole mythology would be amplified by the end. So that absolutely for sure. So and in, and in this movie, it just it, the the stuff that happens at the end with the dance sequence and the like 1940s era cartoon ad. Uh, I just didn't know how we got there. Yeah. I'm no, not no, saying no, no, that no, no, there. No, there's no, 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 no. no. Come on, man. Let's get real. The movie starts bizarre. It's just a little slow. The very first scene has a, some old person looking out the window as this gal who's talking to us about what I think is going to be a movie about suicide gets into this car. And immediately as they're talking, it's as if they're not in the same, like, they're not synchronized in time because it's not just that he can somehow hear her thoughts, which is bizarre, but it's also that she's talking and he answers complete non sequiturs. And you're like, what's happening? And then like, dude, there's that brilliant scene, which I loved, which where he, the janitor, why is the janitor interspersed? Who is this janitor? Like this older janitor. And he's all of a sudden watching a movie. That's like this perfect send up of like the movie you two wanted to watch, which is like, look at me. I'm making obvious points here in front of this girl that I love. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm giving you shit. But, and then it's Robert Zemeckis. Right. It's so good. Okay, so, but but I'm saying is like, okay, the weirdness was swing there. Swing away from Robert Zemeckis, but don't go completely off the cliff. <laughs> By the way, he's good friends with Robert Zemeckis, and he doesn't know how it ended up with him, except because, like, that's not what he wrote in the script. Uh, but, like, he, he said, like, at some point he talked to uh, Robert, and he's like, hey, are you okay if I just put your name here? And he's like, all right. So at some point it changed, and it became Robert Zemeckis. Do you. Are you under the impression that the janitor is the Jesse Plemons character? That is because that is an entirely the, different that's, actor. That it, but that's okay. I'm not saying it's him in makeup. I'm just saying <laughs> the whole story is that old man dying in a frozen car and re- revisiting his life in in like the throes of madness. Of but it's not his it, life. It is. I mean, it's not literally his life. It is bits and pieces of what he wanted, what he, like, for example, he, he was a janitor at the school, so he's got all these, like, mixture of things. Uh, he, he lived in that house. Those were his parents, obviously exaggerated, all these things. Um, he grew up in a farm. He saw some traumatic things as a kid. And apparently, and again, this part, and a lot of this, I only know because I read a little bit afterwards, but he did meet this gal at a bar, didn't have the guts to ask her out, and now he imagined what would have happened potentially. But that's why she doesn't know him, right? That's why she's like, and that's why later she confesses to the janitor, like, I don't know, I never went out with, I don't, you know, blah, blah. Um, So yeah, Yeah, the whole thing is him. Yeah, I mean, you're confirming what I suspected, uh, which is satisfying to me. Um, So that's not what you took away from it, Colin? No. Who did you think the old guy was in in the story? I don't know if this was Charlie Kaufman's intention, but I thought he was possibly a cipher character. 
or in some place a um you know or or in some ways a representation of Kaufman's idea of himself as a creator and so he's trying to come up with a love story you know between two people or a story between two people and he can't and oh, it's I not see. the first time he's you know done a story about somebody i mean synecdoche new york is literally philip seymour hoffman just trying to assemble a fucking story and it being so boring at the end um (laughs) not boring i'm not saying the movie is boring i'm saying his product you know he doesn't like succeed or anything so i i thought i thought that's what it was I, i guess not well, so just to clarify, the book, again, I didn't read it, but I know enough because I read enough, blah, blah, blah. Um, the, in the book, the, the whole first part of the book, it's, uh, yeah, this, this, the, the story is there was this janitor who was a janitor at a high school for like 30 years, and then he died under mysterious circumstances. Um, but the, sto- the first part of the story is told from the voice of the gal, but the big twist in the book is that the gal is just made up, not fully made up but it's essentially uh this guy's uh imagining of what it would have been like being with her and then apparently and maybe i'm butchering it because i like i said i haven't personally read it. this is what i understand and at some point in the book uh it switches in narration to basically explaining what happened from the perspective of kids that attended the high school many no years but later. this is what i'm the, this is what i'm sorry i just i have to get it straight in my head because now i'm spiraling no so what i'm saying is that exactly that but it's a person just a the janitor is just yeah. person and yeah. and not just the girl but like jesse plemons and the parents and the dog and the house they're all just pieces of a story he's trying to write right well no he's remembering he, the, yeah, he's, he's just not- remembering bits of his life. Badly. He's remembering bits of his life badly and jumbled up. Yeah. And they're getting and fucked up. And then making up. up stuff. And making up stuff. Like, you're but not wrong. But none of them are the exact, but this is what I'm saying, is none of them are exact. They're right. all... Oh, yeah. They're, he's Absolutely. all working towards a truth, but he can't get there. Yes? That's... Yeah. He, yeah. Well, and, and, and keep and, in mind that... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he's plagued. You know, like, they're, he's not working at it in terms of, like, constructing. He's remembering... Right. Emotionally. Like... He always felt intimidated by his parents, for example, and that's how he's remembering them as like very intimidating at times, right? It should have been him working at it more, though. Yeah. You're not wrong that he's writing because although we don't see that in the in the movie at all, I don't think. Apparently, in the book, the kids in the high school in the future, the people that went to the high school, they find writings by him. So. I don't know if that's implied or something, but I never saw it in the movie. Uh, I will say adaptation is an adaptation, too. There was yes, an actual Orchid Thief book, but the movie has nothing to do with the book. I know. Than, and it's know, such a brilliant movie. Right. And so he felt he could take... He, In fact, he thought like he learned his lesson from trying to adapt things and not being able to adapt them exactly, that he's just going to do what he what he feels like. <laughs> Golly. And that's what he did this time again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's like the shadow of the idiot brother. You know what I mean? He's, he's not Charlie Kaufman. He's not the idiot brother, but he's like, he's a, like a weird version of the idiot brother. <laughs> but I was thinking about, because you mentioned Mulholland Drive. And the reason that, because that movie really is just a series of very interesting, mind you, but gear shifts. They, they are gear shifts nonetheless. And it, it'll turn on a dime and all of a sudden you'll be like, whoa, where the fuck am I? But I do think that the characters fight moment to moment in a way that gets you to the next scene. Even if, like, the breadth of the story is only, like, that one particular scene and then it's on to the next story, you know? Or or, or if that story gets thrown in the trash, that, to me, is the point of Mulholland Drive. And I didn't, I didn't get that 
with this. If that's what he was trying to go for, it that's why it, it didn't push from a 6.5 to like a 10 for me. So just looking through my notes here, um, I immediately recognized or suspected, I should say, that Jesse Buckley as young woman, her character, I immediately thought, oh, she's not American <laughs> or she's not, a, she's not from Canada or United States because I can almost guarantee that is someone with an accent that's trying to sound American and I looked her up and indeed she's Irish. And uh, did either of you notice that? No, I just thought I just thought she had a particular. Uh, I, I didn't catch that it would have been an accent. You're right. I just thought that she was speaking in a very particular way, and I thought it was a direction thing. But obviously, I, it was. I found I heard it in some of her eyes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was it, the character was originally supposed to be Brie Larson, and who you know oh. has an American accent or yeah. North North American accent. I liked her though. Yeah, I thought as an actress, she she actually was interesting. I'm interested to see her in actually good movies with good scripts. But but it annoys me when they cast people from other countries trying to pass them with American accents, and it's distracting. Now, of course, you know people pro Charlie Kaufman. Well, that's all on purpose. I don't think it was. I no, think- no, no. I, I I'm not saying that. I just I'm not good with. Maybe I didn't catch on that. I just thought she... So you know what I thought? Because certainly it, it happens on purpose later. Because you know when she's imitating that reviewer, like some famous movie reviewer, and she's got that very posh East Coast accent, blah, blah, blah. I just thought that it was like sort of old, old-timey, old like like from, from decades ago or something. But I, I, heard, <laughs> I heard her accent in every sentence she talked. I, I was like, oh... What is I, I and and I thought maybe she's Midwest, you know, maybe she has a little bit of a Wisconsin thing in there. But I was like, uh, no, it doesn't sound that way to me. It sounds like someone who is struggling with the accent and is is like really straining to to keep their at their um, vowels a certain way. Did you hear Thulis struggle at all, or was it just her? Because he's British, the one who played the father. Yeah, he's uh, he's Lupin. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really fault him for that, or he pulled it off well enough, or or something. Um, I'm just getting tired of casting directors or producers thinking that it's a good idea to do that because, and it, this goes all different directions. Obviously, if when American, like you know, uh, what's his face from Field of Dreams, um, uh, what's his name, uh, trying to do Robin Hood, you know. For example. <laughs> You know, the, the, Does he do Costner. an accent in that? Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Costner. Costner. Well, he tried, and you know, there's there's various different examples of this, and I'm always thinking, there's Talk no one in far and away, right? There's no one on the planet oh, yeah. who can who actually has that accent, or at least can is closer in geography to that accent that couldn't have played this part, or you couldn't have changed the script. Like she didn't have to be American; she could have been Irish. Yeah. Like, why not just just change it? Just let her right. ha- speak in her. You, you'd save money yeah. on, you know, sp- you know, voice coaches and accent coaches, and it wouldn't have. It would have actually been oh, interesting. You know, in his mind, it's an Irish girl or something. You know, who who knows? It doesn't. I, I just it, it started. It bothers me that they can't think outside the box, and because it's distracting, it's like a it's like a fly on a on a head of white hair. I can't stop looking at it. Or they could have kept changing it throughout, and then, you know, he remembered it differently at different times. <laughs> right. 
Um, other things from my notes here. I was actually in Oklahoma, the musical, when I was in high school, and so ah. I enjoyed seeing little scenes there. Um, let's see. Brie Larson. Uh, da, da, da. Michelle Gondry. Oh, I wanted to talk about... I want, Oh, Rotten Tomatoes, Berto. What do you think? Uh, so it's um, 80. Okay, Colin, what do you think? 70. It's 88. 80. Yeah. Eight. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so I, I do not For understand. now. Karen Hahn of, of Polygon wrote, The lack of clear answers and structure can be frustrating, but the strange way the story is told enhances just how real the exchanges between characters feel. The frustration that Lucy feels with Jake, that Jake feels with his mother, that his parents feel with each other, and all the uncomfortably tangible especially as tensions rise. Sorry, that was actually a good review that I don't agree yeah, with. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> uh, Stephanie uh, Zacharek wrote, I'm thinking of ending things must have been, an ar- must have been arduous to make and, is, and it's excruciatingly tedious to watch. I, I really butchered that sentence. Must have been arduous to make and it's excruciatingly tedious to watch. Uh, I completely agree, Stephanie Zacharek. Um, I wanted to end with talking about some other um, directors, auteurs, if you will, who have also frustrated me with having genius in the beginning. And as they get more money and more clout, they go off the rails. Steven Spielberg. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, he, uh, he's actually not one of them. He's, he's had a, you know, obviously just hit after hit in my book. I mean, there's some... No, but he's, he's had... He's had duds. There's some down moments for sure, but uh, but I think once we go to this list, you'll 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 see a pattern here. I want to do Paul Thomas Anderson, so let me explain. Mm. That. And there's really only one major dud in his group, but um, it, it 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 is along the lines, and I'm worried that PTA is going to go down a similar road that Charlie Kaufman did. And by the way, just sidebar: Charlie Kaufman legitimately suffers from suicidality and depression. It's like not a uh, uh, affectation that he does to sell more tickets like he he I've, I've heard interviews with him that um, he probably suffers from OCD as well uh, he is legitimately troubled as a human being and um, maybe the script writing has something to do with that I don't know and I think that as he's gotten more popular it's gotten worse for him in some ways you know as he's, as he's aged so I don't know the full story of that but and I think he's quite open about it I probably should have looked into it but anyway uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. So, Punch Drunk Love is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, love it, love it, love it. Magnolia, love it's it. It's Adam Sandler's best, I would say. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, Magnolia. Well, have you seen the... I haven't seen, but everyone un- raves uncut. about it. Yeah, un- oh, uncut. No, I, no, I didn't see it. Um, I would give it a very close second to Punch Drunk Love okay. for him, for sure. I mean, he carries that movie, un- Uncut Gems. Okay. Uh, Magnolia, I love. Um, not not everyone loves that movie, but but I, I really do. Respect the God. Yeah. Give me my pills. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there will be blood. Uh, again, just a master movie. Uh, his first movie, uh, Hard Eight, uh, I love with Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, Samuel L. Jackson. Not a lot of people know that that was his first movie. Um, Boogie Nights, of course. Uh, the Master, which. Uh, I could see people not liking, but we're getting as we go through the, his career later in his career. Now we're looking at movies like um, so beginning a career, Heart Eight, very understandable story. 
Boogie Nights, very understandable story. Uh, Punch Drunk Love, total story. Magnolia, we're getting into a little, but it's definitely stories. It's not surreal. The, the, the frog thing is surreal, but that's kind of it. There Will Be Blood, nothing surreal about that. Now we get into The Master. There's nothing surreal about The Master, but it's a little plotless. Then we get into Phantom Thread, which I liked. Genuinely liked that movie. But if I wasn't in the mood for that movie, I could see not liking it. Berto, did you like Phantom Thread? I did not see that. Colin, did you like it? I like Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't know that I liked the screenplay that much. Right. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis is always stellar. Yeah. So I could absolutely see... I was. I remember thinking as I was watching the movie that, oh my God, I am into this movie. But if someone wasn't into this, like the style or... Because it doesn't have a plot. It's just kind of this story. But it's not magical. But it, we're starting to get a little bit weirder and non-pop movie, if you will. And then we have Inherent Vice, which is around the time that The Master and Phantom Thread came out, uh, which I hated. Um, I also hate this movie. You do? Oh, yes. We agree on a hated movie, Colin. I feel Finally! So- it, it was about time. I'm going to have to watch it and see if I agree with your disagreement. 2014, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Josh Brolin, Owen Wilson. Um, it is based on a book and the book makes no sense apparently and the movie makes even less sense it was frustrating to watch i i i mean it was there were it's a mystery without a mystery there's no mystery to the mystery yeah it's it's um it's terrible it's just a terrible movie critics loved it and i was like what is going on and so i'm worried that paul thomas anderson his, the days of him making Punch Drunk Love, Heart Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, There Will Be Blood are behind him. And now he's into the shitty Charlie Kaufman later career phase of his Stop life. Stop with that. Stop okay, with that. Okay, it's not shitty. Not only that, but like these are very different things. Because like, I never would have said, oh, you know the thing I like about Paul Thomas Anderson is the weird, crazy, random uh, surreal <laughs> surrealism. No, I like actually the, like, the viscerally real feeling scenes and stuff like that. Whereas with Charlie Kaufman, the, my favorite things about it are like the weird surreality of it all. So anyways, so we're talking about different I, things. I here. would argue that that is your favorite thing. Your favorite thing about adaptation and Eternal Sun- Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is the whole package, the story, yeah. and yeah, how enough. the surrealism plays to the story, how it moves you emotionally, how you have hopes and dreams for the characters. You want Charlie in adaptation to write that script. You want uh, Meryl Streep to fall in love and have you know a romantic experience and then at the end you you want charlie and his brother to live and you want you know there's wants there's desire there's relatability and and there's wants and desires in this one that that i felt i felt a strong want and desire from her to have her own voice and make her own decisions. And I felt a frustration the whole time about it. I felt a want and desire from him to have a relationship and to have love and to, and to have his parents like, like see him as a grown-up. And I felt like the, the needs and wants of his parents to have their child be like, you know, perfect and always aggrandize everything about it. Did him. you like his character? I felt uh, the most empathy for her. But I, I felt sad for him. I, I didn't like him at all. I thought he was a jerk. I, you know, I'm remembering what really kicked it off the rails for me was when uh, he's like, don't go in the basement. I was like, oh, my God. 
talk about your second grade symbolism. Don't go in the basement. Yeah, but what was in the basement? I feel like it was more symbolic. Well, it wasn't just more symbolic. There was nothing obvious about the symbolism. It wasn't, in fact, the scary traumatic memory that they showed us. It was the, the marks on the, on the door weren't made by a monster. Okay, well, what, what was the basement symbolizing? I think that the basement was meant to represent the... Because uh, the story, I think, is meant to be sort of allegorical for the progression of a relationship and how deep you can really and deeply you can invest in somebody else and so that represented like the place that she was unwilling to go or rather he was unwilling to really allow her to go right which is like into his truth so to speak the the deepest of his the deepest uh parts of his own psyche and personality that he really wasn't able to share with her which may have in some ways contributed to her need to escape right exactly I, i have a different take I'm not saying you're wrong. I just have a different take. And maybe it's because I literally had this experience as a child. When I was about uh, four, maybe five, I was in Massachusetts, and we were at friend's house. And me and the little kid, we were downstairs playing in the basement. And the basement had these long, rickety wooden stairs. And all of a sudden, the grandma of the kid at the top of the stairs makes super scary sounds and flicks the lights on and off and makes woo ghost sounds and, and like shuts the door or something. <laughs> and I was freaked the fuck out. I'm sorry. And I'm it laughing. traumatized me. And I remember it. I mean, it's okay now, but I'm just I'm saying it was traumatizing. So when he says, when she's like, what is, what, what's wrong with the basement? And he goes, you know, basements, like, you know, when you're a kid, it's like, I literally believe that's, that's all it is, but it's real in his mind at the moment because he's, he's fantasizing all these things. And he is genuinely scared of the basement in his psyche. And, you know, maybe I can relate because I had that experience. <laughs> but he spells it out. He says, you know, basements, when you're a kid, it's like scary. Yeah. So David Lynch, uh, a similar kind of situation. You got Mulholland Drive. Obviously, the TV show Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks the movie, Elephant Man, I actually like that movie, Dune, I like, Lost Highway, like it, Straight Story, very weird David Lynch movie for him to direct, but also great. Um, and then you have Eraserhead, which you can't really r- rate exactly. It's like an, it's a 10 in my mind in some ways, and it's a 1 in my mind in other ways. And then you have Inland Empire, his, I think it was his most latest movie, 2006, is unwatchable. It is uh, – and what is that? You know, What makes the director a genius and makes them create such a, such a terrible experience in the theater? And the only thing I can think of is that these directors, uh, they get so up their own butts in terms of their own style – that they overthink it. You know, in the beginning of your career, it's, I mean, I think maybe, I don't know, Colin, about you and, you know, the various creative endeavors you're in, but, you know, I know Birdo, he's writing a book and he's also a songwriter, as am I. And I can kind of relate, like, when I think about writing music, there's this, uh, there's this constant especially I think as time goes on, or maybe in the beginning too, interfacing as I'm writing with like, I'm always fast forwarding, like, okay, well, what if I show people this song or have them listen to it? What are they going to think of this part? You know, and then I'm back in my skin and I'm writing this, thinking about just me and what I want to hear. And then I'm like, well, 
have I written other music like this in, in before? Do I need to do a little bit of different? Okay, back in the moment. And when you're creating, it's hard not to uh, live in the moment or it's a, it's just a, it's an insecure process potentially. And I wonder if Charlie Kaufman is suffering so much that he got so wrapped around his own worries that he had a hard time producing something as genius as earlier when perhaps he was not as troubled, really. It's just a guess. I think it's something to do with um, the feedback that he receives because I, he's even... Charlie Kaufman has gone in on talks and stuff where he's he's he doesn't do many of them, but when he talks about writing... He'll say, bound forward with your weirdest idea. Do the thing that is scary. Do the thing that makes you, you know, stay up at night thinking about your next idea. Don't do the safe thing. Don't think about your screenplay in terms of dividends or how much you can sell your screenplay. Just lead authentically. And I think he does that with every piece, but I think with some of these other movies, and again, that's why my hunch is that really the right ingredient is a separate director, because... I, I'll use myself as an example. Um, so I, I wrote a screenplay called The Aquarium that is partially set here, partially set in Seattle, and we're hoping to um, to actually shoot it again post-vaccine. It's slated for not this upcoming Christmas, but the next Christmas um, with Stranger Mornings Productions. That was a weird pimp. I didn't mean to plug my stuff right then, but I'm saying recently no, that's awesome. the, the director um, gave me some notes on a script. I had three different scenes where well two where she the the main character is watching um movies first love actually second jurassic park and then there's two separate scenes where um there's an actor performing a few lines from closer and he was like oh do you like all these movies are these movies in these plays and i was like well yeah and then he was like well i that's great but i don't know how in the context of this movie that I, I didn't really understand what it meant for the characters. And I was like, oh, well, blah, 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 blah. And I went on like a five-minute thing explaining. And he's like, okay, just so you know, none of that comes across. Just sit with this for a little bit. And I did. And after sitting with it, this turned into a way longer story than I meant to. But basically, after sitting with it for a while, I realized that I needed to use fresh material for those scenes instead of pulling from outside resources because that was the only way I was going to get across what I wanted to get across in the scenes and I think that that's important for Charlie Kaufman who is a visionary he needs someone to remind him of the audience yeah I don't know why you've been sitting on this story this whole time because that's exactly the sort of uh, thing we need to hear about from an actual screenwriter who works with directors and and uh, you know because similar uh, to screenwrite, you know, what you just said is, and I'm sure Berto can relate to this, is that I will write a song and I will, you know, record it. And in my head, I'm hearing something that might not be there, either good or bad. And then I always have to put the recording down. And I, the, I like to wait as long as I can. Sometimes I can only wait a couple of days, but Best case scenario, I wait like a few weeks and then I listen back to it because then I'll actually hear it with real ears instead of hearing it with what I think is in there. And um, and so uh, if I wait longer, I'll hear it more close to the way other people are going to hear it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I do the same thing for sure. Yeah. I mean, we should keep in mind, like uh, just like Radiohead, Radiohead 
has gone in musical directions that I no longer necessarily look for. I, I don't. I think they're geniuses. Everything they do is really impressive technically. Uh, I just I really loved the more traditional construction of of the songs and records of their earlier stuff. Um, and so uh, after Kid A, maybe I, I started like, oh, this is really cool. But eh. and like I listened to In Rainbows probably. 30 times all the way through and I still can't remember a single song I, that's day. my favorite Radiohead album I, I can't remember a song but anyways my point with it though is they're great and so just because they, they kind of left my shores of what I prefer that's okay and the same thing is true with him I would agree with you guys that he's nowhere near as good a director as he is a writer I would agree and it, it shows you know Synecdoche is the first one he directed and that's where folks started like departing his shores for whatever reason with me it doesn't. And we should keep in mind, Synecdoche was called like the best movie of the decade by Roger frickin' Ebert, right? And, 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 and so like he got a lot of acclaim, but it was a very divisive movie. As you just pointed out, this movie has gotten like 88% or whatever. And I get Rotten Tomatoes is a, is a, you know, a mess a lot of times. But I don't think he's like, we can't talk about this like, ah, oh, he just, what a failure. You know, it's like, no, he's no, no, really no. Stuff. It's just more, more niche. <laughs> Maybe more niche. I don't know. Maybe it's not more niche. But and on a on a on next Wednesday, I might love Synecdoche, New York. I, I bounce back and forth with that movie every other week. But Kirk, I was just curious. Um, and and Umberto too. Um, Twin Peaks. Do you like it? Do you not? What do you think? Yeah. So at the time when it came out, I it was it was you know I was obsessed. Me and my friends watched it whenever it came out. Um, we were nineteen and just terrified by it and at, at the <laughs> time it was you know this was this was at the time when vixen was being played on MTV nonstop and poison and i'm just <laughs> pointing that in in perspective you know john bon jovi and this is at a time when everything was plastic in america and you know uh, nothing interesting was happening on television at all and to have television have this serial show that was on every Sunday night or something. Uh, just so interesting. And so much so that me and my friends, we bought the diary by, you know, Laura Palmer that was written by David Lynch's oh daughter. Oh, my God. And we would stay up at night reading passages. I mean, we were just like yes. obsessed with this thing. And by the way, I worked at the lodge as a kid. Um, the, at, at, the at, at the time the movie or the TV show was out, I was working oh my God. at the lodge as a as a busboy. So I had all these connections, and that that waterfall um, is pretty close to where I grew up. We would go there all the time, and uh, my brother was a chef there. Blah blah. blah. Anyway, um, but <laughs> when I went back to watch it years later. There are storylines that I cannot watch. Um, the James storyline when he, you know, is off on the road and he meets that older woman, and I mean, I cannot stand because it's essentially a soap opera, and they make fun of that throughout the the series. But um, but other storylines like everything with uh, you know Lieutenant or with Agent Cooper. Um, everything with Bob, everything with Laura Palmer, everything with Leland, everything with the mom, like every, every scene, I'm just like, <gasps> I mean, I get chills just thinking about the, the, the storyline, but, but some of it is like not easy to watch, but the style and the, the music, actually I recorded 
one of the songs from that uh, I record, you know, just you and I, uh, I, I actually recorded that song because I was so obsessed with that song. Uh, what about you guys? Did you like Twin Peaks? So, I mean, I, I, I never watched it because I was not in this country when it started. And when I got here, maybe I was just too young or something. Uh, and then now, recently, I, I tried to like watch it because everyone's like oh Twin Peaks is coming back or whatever I don't know and so I was like I'll try to watch it I love David Lynch I'm sure it's amazing um, I just uh, and I started I just couldn't quite get into it and I felt guilty I'm like oh, I'm sure this is great I just there's no. so many shows I'm supposed to watch no I could see that absolutely like uh, it, it yeah I, if I were to just encounter and by the way I couldn't get through the sequel that came out on showtime a couple years ago uh, oh uh, i couldn't either no uh, yeah i got through like the first i don't know i i powered my way through like two and a half episodes and i was like i i just can't i just can't no, i dropped this. that shit quicker than the final season of house of cards yeah <laughs> <laughs> what about the the original series what what do you think colin I love it. I think it's a flawlessly executed surrealist mystery. And whenever I'm watching it, I never care that I don't know exactly where it's going. And I'm a huge Kyle MacLachlan fan. I think that um, Cooper is, he was a really trailblazing character. Um, I think that without that, we wouldn't have gotten shows later like Mindhunter, um, you know, the kind of enigmatic um person you know with without having to cast the lead male uh detective character as this macho man or this goofy man um yeah and and i love let's not, the... let's not forget showgirls too yeah <laughs> i okay so one of the fans i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say her name um uh, excuse me i just almost choked on not not the mike pence fly i just choked on my own saliva um but um so one of our fans is dying for us to talk about showgirls because they are convinced. I mean, and, and I love, I love that director the, and they, they just want that us to that. revisit it because they think it's actually like a, more of like a feminist gem than people give it credit for. So oh, just really? saying that's out, that's on the table. I, I, I will always talk about showgirls. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin, local favorite, um, from, from the Seattle area. That's Can't right. Exactly where, um, so another director that I have a similar disappointment in is Terry Gilliam. Uh, Brazil was my number one movie for many years until I really edged it out with uh, Clockwork Orange. Um, Brazil is just a – to me, it, it moved me so much when I saw this when I was 14 years old. I mean, I – it was just similar to like Fight Club. I saw Fight Club when I was what, tw- you know, twenty-seven or something, and it just really hit me. Um, Monty Python. He directed Monty Python, Holy Grail. Uh, he directed Time Bandits. Just a, just a very influential movie on my life when I was ten years old. The Fisher King used to be one of my favorite movies of all time. Twelve Monkeys. Love the movie. Adventures of uh, Baron Munchausen. Pretty good. Uh, Imaginary of, of Dr. Parnassus, perfect movie that's very weird, and I loved it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus doesn't make any sense. Uh, Fear and Loathing I, I'm, is actually not one of my favorite Terry Curry. I, I just don't, I don't know why. I, I guess it's because I actually treat people with drug addiction and 
these kinds of movies, Wolf of Wall Street movies, I just I'm like, uh, what's so funny about drugs? Drugs aren't funny. Like, uh, we all know what it's like to get high or to to be you know intoxicated. Like, how is it funny when people are like obviously overdosing and damaging their brain or hurting themselves or I don't know or killing well, people? Well, and, but when they're driving and shooting guns, that's funny. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, for some reason, I, it just doesn't. But I gave it a six out of ten, fear and loathing, because um, it's interesting. And the Bre- Brothers Grimm, two thousand five, not great. Matt Damon, Heath Ledger, Tideland is one of his later movies. Uh, Terry Gilliam. Uh, so he goes from the genius of Brazil, Holy Grail, Time Bandits, Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, and in his later career, he makes Tideland, which has all the things it should have. You know, has all the great things. Jeff Bridges, um, Jennifer Tilly. And it's terrible. It is an awful, awful movie. Critics hated it. I hated it. Um, it's surreal. It doesn't have a story, really. It's, like, indulgent, you know. The, trying, instead of, like, trying to tell a story like Brazil or Time Bandits or Fisher King, it's clear that he's just, like... Uh, and maybe, you know, as we were talking, I think one of the things that might that I could get on board with about this is, like... Maybe these are the movies they always wanted to make. And, you know, they're like, look, I have all the power in the world. I have money. They'll give me, I can make whatever I want to make. I just want to make something that I like. And if people don't like it, screw them. I just want to make something that I like. And I'm going to, I'm going to make my gem of a movie. I can get behind that. You know, if this was Charlie Kaufman's like perfect movies, just like, no, I know this isn't going to go over that well with the masses, but I don't care because, I'm creating art, and this is mine, and, you know, so what if I created things that were popular in the past? You're all just going to have to deal with this right now because this is this is what I want to do. I totally get it if, if that's what it is, but I don't know if that's what it is. I think it's something else. I think it's arrogance or um, I don't know. There's something that happens, I think, with some of these auteurs where something is lost or something is gained, and they disappoint me which, of course, doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but I wish they wouldn't. <laughs> Thoughts on that, Colin? What do you think? I think that a director can become more... So there's a podcast called Blank Check, and um, it covers a, a wide range of directors who... you know, And, and the, the premise of the podcast is basically, here are directors who worked to a point where they are given blank checks. Like, the, I guess you could say the the ultimate blank check director is like Steven Spielberg. When Steven Spielberg goes to a producer and asks for X amount of money to make a movie, it's very likely he'll get close to, you know, whatever number he envisions on that check, because he has the cred. And certainly there are many directors that have reached blank check status, and I think that before a director gets to that moment, they have to pave the way. It's a, it's always a, and maybe it's always the case, even when you get to blank check status. But I think, especially before you get to that status, it's, this could be my last job. You know, I may not be hired again. I may not to get, you know, I, I may not get to direct. And there's this sense of stakes, um, that maybe goes away a bit as they continue their career. And I think fewer people stand up to them whenever creative decisions are maybe a little 
mired. So for and and a great example of this is um, the prequel trilogy for Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas was not a blank check director when he made the original trilogy, especially not the first one, less so the second one, and then probably by return he was, but whatever. Still, there were people questioning George Lucas, um, you know, going going on about, hey, should should Han Solo be a reptile? Maybe not. Um, and, and I think that we that when directors lose those voices. And people get on the bandwagon of just like, you're a genius, you're a genius, I love you, you're a genius, um, that's what you want to do, sure. Um, you know, that tends to happen, and then the reverse is, I think, true, which you kind of touched on or hinted at, where um, they don't have to listen to those people as much. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder, uh, and it, it it's, um, there's also a factor of uh, most geniuses have the most genius work when they're young. Um, you know, mathematicians, the Beatles, these kinds of things. You know, how many people listen to the most recent Mick Jagger album, <laughs> you know? Uh, and Rush, for example, the band in the early days. It's um, something that might also be happening. Um, I, I could even say that about my own songwriting. I wonder if I can even write the music that I wrote in the past. Uh, I wonder if the music I write is just all recycled stuff I've done before. Um, there's certain ruts. Your your brain gets set in its ways, if, if you will. There's, there's a certain uh, madness, I suppose, or chaos in creativity that needs to be present, I think, to create something that's truly great. And I think, I'll just speak from personal experience, the older I get the more kind of just regular I become, the, the more boring I become in, in some ways. There's a great black and white movie about that, actually. Um, it's an Italian film by Federico Fellini called Eight and a Half, literally about all the oh, yeah. things you just mentioned. I didn't know that's what it's about. I mean, that's a very famous movie. I, I, I'd, I'd never watched that before. It's interesting. Berto, what do you think? Uh, I mean, so I think it is a little bit of all the things you said, because number one, uh, absolutely the whole I am a famous director now or writer or whatever and I finally have freedom to do the ideas unfettered what a lot of times happens is fettering helps you rein in some of your worst ideas that's true uh, other other aspects are a little less clear for example Paul McCartney Paul McCartney I mean you could say he was getting reined in by George Martin a bit I guess but not really, and, and and maybe John was saying like, oh, that that verse is crap. Maybe you have a better verse in yet. Okay, I would buy that. We don't have that much account of that actually happening, but fine. But I don't think that that can explain in full why you know you get his latest album and it's nice. It's it's nice music. You know, it's very elaborate. It's not just you know he's got all the same scales and stuff. So. Was it that his ideas were fresher and now we're used to them so they don't sound as fresh? Maybe. The other thing that happens is uh, artists that are struggling, and maybe that's not true for Paul, but like a lot of artists that are struggling, they have that one idea that's the thing that propels them forward. And they're like, oh, I, just, I just need to make this thing. And they think about it for years and they finally do it. And it's an idea that survived years. So, uh, And then you roll the dice and many of those artists that do it still don't, don't make it. But the ones that right. make it, 
that idea was so good. Right. Well, then now we're expecting them to come up with, you know, a, a lifetime more of these great once in a lifetime ideas. Right. What expectations did you have about a human that they would change the face of physics forever and then do it again? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, I guess as we're talking about it, I should be happy that Charlie Kaufman gave me some of my most important artistic creations that I frequently enjoy and think about and am inspired by. Yeah. And, and that so far he hasn't let us down at all and that he's hopefully going to keep doing only genius. <laughs> and then you get people, I think, okay, so I know he's like a weirdo and like fuck Woody Allen, like I get it, but like I have loved some of his movies before I really was self-aware of what he did. Um, like Annie Hall you know, is a brilliant, brilliant movie. And then, you know, years go by and certainly there were some other greats. Um, you know, I love Stardust Memories and blah, blah, blah. But um, there were some duds for me. Some that some that kind of fell flat. And then all of a sudden, and, and even more recent ones, um, I think it was something called like Love... Um, the Love Doctor. It's not. It's not called the Love Doctor. I forgot it. Um, but uh, then you get one like Vicky Cristina Barcelona, like where it, you, yeah. you revisit the brilliance of a master. So I do think that it's it's possible to have genius later in life um, with blips of like not such stellar work. Yeah. So getting to Woody Allen, I'm looking at his filmography right here and. Yeah, I love Woody Allen, and he is a horrible human being uh, in ways that we might not even understand or know. Uh, but I love his movies. I I can't help it. Um, there's just no way around it for me. Um, but if you really look at his uh, filmography, you see that it's sort of uh, touch and go throughout his career. Um, you know, uh, it was, he didn't really make a movie that I really loved until Annie Hall, 77. Next year, he did Interiors, which I actually love that movie. It's a very different movie than any other movies he's ever made. It's very artsy, Interiors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very Charlie Kaufman, if you will. Manhattan is great. Of course, there's some weirdness about that movie. <laughs> um there's, uh, let's see, we have... But objectively, really, really, really good. Yeah. We have uh, Broadway, Danny Rose, which I remember enjoying, Purple, Rose of Cairo, Hannah and Her Sisters, that's like uh, Annie Hall too in a lot of ways, but for older 80s people. Um, and there's uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Alice, uh, Husbands and Wives, Bullets Over Broadway, Mighty Aphrodite, that's a great one. Um, but then there's like celebrity, which was you know I thought pretty boring. Uh, Small time crooks. I remember being like, eh, okay. But I mean, like when you're talking about like so many works, again, it's like I, I feel, and I'm so guilty of this too. But sometimes we're so entitled. Like, yeah, you should only, you shouldn't even get one great work. If you have one great work, we should be done talking about it. Like, yeah. you're entitled yeah. to shit. Well, but, but my point with Woody, <laughs> but my point with Woody Allen is that contrary to the characters that he often writes for himself, in real life, what I've heard from him and other people close to him is that he is a very normal, mundane human, who like he's not very interesting, he's not very exciting, he has a he's a creature of habit. Um, he plays clarinet pretty well in a jazz <laughs> ensemble, but. He's just a, a normal guy who dresses like a schlub and 
uh, watches sports. And so I think for him, what helped him to create genius later in life, like um, like Blue Jasmine, To Rome With Oh, that love. was the other one I was thinking of. Yeah. Uh, Midnight in Paris. Love it. Uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Match Point is amazing. Match Point is so good. Love it. Um, these are all later, much later career movies that he made within the past 10 or 15 years. Um, so I would suspect that for him, he's not up his own butt as much as some of these other directors, Terry Gilliam, Charlie Kaufman, <laughs> that he's like, you know what, I'm just going to make a movie and no big deal because he makes he puts out a movie every year. He doesn't get he doesn't get up in his head. He's like, well, if I make a dud, you know, I'll make another movie next year and we'll move on in life. Like, I'm wondering if there's an attitude that lends itself towards creating art that Kirk enjoys. <laughs> Do you remember Match Point, Berto? No, I, I haven't seen almost any of these movies. I oh. just feel so uneducated when it comes to these. Match movies. Point would be a great choice for us to talk about. There's so much to dissect. Yeah, it's an act. It's right. a it's a psychological thriller, and I'll it's watch it. it's not funny at all. It has Scarlett Match Johansson Point. and Jonathan Rhys Meyers, and the very underrated Matthew Good. Well, I think we've rambled on long enough, and I've <laughs> alienated enough people in this episode. Uh, Colin, final word on on this uh, episode in which we talked about that movie. I'm <laughs> thinking about ending. I'm thinking of endings written and directed by Charlie Kaufman. We're, we're thinking about ending this episode. Um, so I I think that when uh, somebody sits down to write a film, or when you get a script and it's time for you to direct the film. I do believe that it is your prerogative to be as much yourself with the material as you can be. Explore it from your perspective and start there and then have an open mind. Open your heart and soul up to the experiences of others and how they might um, enhance your material. Not necessarily, um, you know just take everybody's word and forget about your passion for the project and stay true to your beliefs with the film. But I think the film is an inherently uh, collaborative medium. The truth is, is that, you know, we put directors on this pedestal. We put writers, I mean, let's put, let's be honest, the script is pretty fucking important. But like the director, yes, has reigning power to make decisions, but so many people i mean if you wait to watch credits there are so many people that make a movie come to life and so you know you have so many creative voices why wouldn't you allow them to flourish and listen to people like actors who bring again using uh you know star wars as an example again a lot of the dialogue really was not it didn't sound like humans were speaking in that first movie so the actors brought some other ideas to the table and luckily they used some of them so now we have characters that will be remembered forever as opposed to a bunch of archetypes that fall flat so bottom line trust in yourself but trust in the collaborative nature of film all right. Well, that does it for that collaborative episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Meet me in Montauk, but bring your mask. 